as they're leaving, it's been a while since I took a stool up here. Does, do any of you remember the last time I sat on a stool up front and just sort of talked about an issue that was going on in my heart and rather than do a sermon? Well, guess what? It's been about a year. Um, I've, I actually um, don't want to do this this morning, but I'm going to because God said do it. So I'm going to... Um, how many of you in your lives have had a boss or somebody in charge or a leader that when they were doing something, you thought, if I was in charge, I would not be able to do it that way, or I, sh- I wouldn't do it that way? Have you ever second-guessed your boss that way? Or, 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 or my example here is, I once had a pastor that I was under that I thought, I can't do anything he does without causing damage to the people around me. Have you ever had that? So, so if you had a boss, you thought, if I, were, if I were the boss, I wouldn't do it that way. That's bad. Yeah, okay, good. <sighs> That's good, because the text that we're going to talk about today is, is uh, we're going to go back just a little bit into 1 Samuel 18, and I'm going to read this, and then we'll talk about what's going on in my heart this week, okay? And I'm not trying to be um, horribly uh, difficult on this, but this is 1 Samuel 18. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. There's a number of things in our lives as Christians that I believe we're not supposed to learn from the cultures we live in. Let me say that again. There's some things in our culture that that as believers of Jesus or followers of Jesus, let me give you a definition of uh, what I think of as as, uh, a Christian in this case. Somebody who's called Jesus their Lord or submitted their life or asked him to be in charge That's what a Christian is. And so once Jesus is in charge in your life, the Bible says that uh, instead of the Ten Commandments written on stone or it's written on our heart, uh, Leah read from Jeremiah 17 this morning. Uh, Verse 1 of Jeremiah 17 says this, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond, and is engraved on the tablet of their hearts. That's a hard saying. Look, there's no way to get rid of it on your own. Um, I've got a book here, and I'm going to do a little reading, and if it seems like I'm jumping around, I'm going to work to tie it all in at the end here. But I've got this book. It's called A Tale of Three Kings, A Study of Brokenness. And the point of the book is this, that it says that we essentially have three three sorts of people inside our hearts. We have a King Saul who's mad and angry at everything. We have a David who's broken and ready to serve the Lord. And we have a King Absalom who's bitter and angry about everything. But the bitterness isn't from this. And so what is God's goal in our lives as Christians is to have us not fall to the I'm mad about this 
and raving like King Saul or, or David's son Absalom who seizes the throne from David and says, I'm going to do it better than that. He blew it for me and I'm going to do it better. So how do we lead? You know, just recognize that I'm not quite centered here. I thought for a second that I might uh, have you all move forward so that we could have a fireside chat. Let me read, let me read this to you, It'll t- and I'll take some time to explain what's going on. This is this book, A, St- um, a Tale of Three Kings. The mad king saw David as a threat to the king's kingdom. The king did not understand, it seems, that God should be left to decide what kingdoms survive, which threats. Not knowing this, Saul did what all mad kings do. He threw spears at David. He could. He was king. Kings can do things like that. They almost always do. Kings claim the right to throw spears. Everyone knows such men have that right. Everyone knows very, very well. How do they know? Because the king has told them so over and over. Have you ever known somebody that throws spears? So, have you ever known anybody that throws... How many think that this is only about actual spears? <laughs> can, you, can you name some of the spears that have been thrown at you along the way? Something like somebody called you names or... Um, slandered you behind your back are those spears in your heart as well yeah is it it is possible that this mad king let me say that again is it possible that this mad king was the true king even the lord's anointed what about your king is he the lord's anointed maybe he is maybe he isn't no one can ever really be sure men say they are sure even certain but they are not. They do not know. God knows. If your king is truly the Lord's anointed, and if he also throws spears, then there are some things you can know and know for sure. Your king is quite mad, and he is a king after the order of King Saul. Now, this is not about your boss in the world, but the one who's running your heart. God has a university. It's a small school. Few enroll and even fewer graduate. Very few indeed. God has this school because he doesn't have broken people. Instead, he has several other types of people. He has men, people who claim to be God's authority and aren't. Men who claim to be broken and aren't. Men who are, who are God's authority but who are mad and unbroken He has a regretful, spectroscopic mixture of everything in between, and all of these he has in abundance, but broken men, hardly at all. In God's sacred school of submission and brokenness, there are so few students. Why are there so few students? Because all who are in the school must suffer. And as you might guess, it is often the unbroken ruler whom God sovereignly picks who meets out the pain. David was once a student in the school, and Saul was God's chosen way to crush David. As the king grew in madness, David grew in understanding. He knew that God had placed him in the king's palace under true authority, the authority of King Saul. True, yes, God's chosen university, chosen for David, 
unbroken authority, but divine nonetheless. Is that possible? David drew in his breath and placed himself under his mad king and moved farther down the path of his earthly hell. David had a question, though. What do you do when somebody throws a spear at you? What do you do when somebody throws a spear at you? Does it seem odd to you that David didn't know the answer to this question? After all, everyone else in the world knows what to do when a spear is thrown at them while you pick up the spear and throw it back. When when someone throws a spear at you, David, just wrench it right out of the wall and throw it back. Absolutely, everyone else does, and you can be sure. And in doing that small feat of returning thrown spears, you will prove many things. That you're courageous, that you stand for right, you boldly stand against the wrong, you are tough and can't be pushed around. Sometimes I like to be that, right? I want, I want to be courageous and be tough and not be pushed around. You will not stand for injustice or unfair treatment. You are a defender of the faith, keeper of the flame, detector of all heresy. You will not be wronged, and all these attributes attributes will combine to prove that you are also obviously a candidate for kingship. Yes, perhaps you are the Lord's anointed after the order of King Saul. There is a possibility that some 20 years after your coronation, you will be the most incredibly skilled spear thrower in all the realm and most assuredly by then quite mad. So I'm going to take a little break here and talk about, I have a couple of examples of this sort of thing in, in real life. I had a friend who had a mission, and, and his mission was to witness to people who were caught in cults, C-U-L-T-S. And he spent his life doing that. And he got in trouble one Sunday for wearing a shirt that was calling out somebody in a cult, you know, the leader of a cult. And the church proceeded without talking to him to uh, kick him out of the church and sort of make sure that that didn't happen anymore. Even though the person that saw the shirt initially that was in the cult is now sitting on that guy's board helping him do that work. So I'm I'm just sort of saying this. Um, my friend left because he was sent away and, and sort of was trying to be soft. But the people that did the most damage for him were the people that were offended on his behalf. Do you know what I mean by that? Something happens to somebody you love and you get offended. And you pick up a spear and go to war for somebody that isn't going to war. And then the damage ensues. How is it that Christians are supposed to learn not to do that? It's a hard lesson, don't you think? How not to be just like everyone else in the whole world. I'm going to go on and read just a little bit. This is, unlike everyone else in spear-throwing history, David did not know what to do when a spear was thrown at him. He did not throw Saul's spears back at him nor did he make any spears of his own, nor throw them. Something was different about David. All he did was dodge. 
What can a person, especially a young person, do when the king decides to use them for target practice? What if you're a young person? What if the young person decides not to return the compliment? First of all, he must pretend he cannot see spears. Sometimes the Christian has to decide certain things aren't aimed at them even when they do feel like they're they're aimed at them. Secondly, he must also learn to quick duck quickly. And lastly, he must learn to pretend that nothing at all happened. You can easily tell when someone has been hit by a spear, he turns a deep shade of bitter. David never got hit. Gradually, he learned a very well-kept secret. He discovered three things that prevented him from ever being hit. One, he never learned anything about the fashionable, easily mastered art of spear throwing. Two, he stayed out of the company of all spear throwers. And three, he kept his mouth tightly closed. In this way, spears will never touch you even when they pierce your heart. My king is mad, at least I perceive him to do. What should I do? That's the question of this new chapter. First, recognize this immutable fact. You cannot tell who is the Lord's anointed and who is not. By the way, we have that problem with who's Christian and who's not, don't we? We like to decide who's Christian and who's not. I've often said there's no litmus test in the Bible for who's Christian. There's no yardstick that the Bible gives you. Right, that's my yardstick. This is actually a little bigger than a yard. There's no yardstick in the Bible. The Bible doesn't give you anything to hold up to anybody else and go, man, you don't measure up. You don't measure up. What the Bible gives you is is a pin of iron with a diamond tip written on your own heart that you can say, how much help did I need from Jesus? That's what the Bible does. The measuring stick, the measuring from the Bible is not for you to measure other people, but for you to measure where you are at. If you start measuring other people, I guarantee you that your, that your effectiveness as a witness will disappear because all they'll perceive is your bony finger of indignation. <laughs> right? These are my examples. I keep bringing them back. Some kings, whom all will swear are after the order of King Saul, are really after the order of King David, and others whom all men swear are after the order of King David really are King Saul in their hearts. Who's correct? Who can know? To whose voice do you listen? No human is wise enough to ever break that riddle. All of us do, all any of us can do is walk around asking ourselves this question. Is the man, or is the one in my heart, the Lord's anointed, and if he is, is it after the order of King Saul? You start asking this question over and over again, and then every time you come in there when you're good at uh, asking this question may not seem difficult, especially when you're dodging or crying very hard, but it is, and dodging. You're dodging spears and being tempted to throw one back and being encouraged by others to do just that. And all your rationality and sanity and logic and intelligence and common sense agree. 
but remember in your tears, you know only the question, but not the answer. Is the one ruling my heart Saul or David? I did not like that last chapter, it says. It skirted the problem. I'm in David's situation and I'm in agony. What do I do when the kingdom I'm in is ruled by a spear-wielding king? Should I leave? If so, how? Just when does a person do, just what does a person do in the middle of a knife-throwing contest? Well, you didn't like the question found in the last chapter. It says you won't like the answer found in this one. You get stabbed to death. What is the necessity of that or the good of it? You have your eyes on the wrong King Saul. As long as you look look at your king, you will blame him and him alone. And your present for your present hell, be careful, for God has his eyes fastened sharply on another King Saul, not the visible one standing up there throwing spears at you. No, God is looking at another King Saul, one that is just bad, as bad or worse. God is looking at the King Saul in you. That's a hard word. I just want to make sure that you know that I'm not just doing this for the fun of it. This week I was uh, semi-accused of not standing up for Christ in the way that was right. And, and I want you to know that the, they're in an argument and, and, I, and I think that it's really um, unfortunate to be caught in an argument. But here's, here's the thing. If I, as I stay centered on my relationship with Christ, I have a choice to yell and get mad about something being done over there but when I say, no, we got to condemn those people over there, or we can't be near those people, or those people will infect us, and those people are bad for us, then I'm suddenly sitting in, not in this seat, but I'm sitting over here in King Saul's seat, which is not really here saying, but the rules say I get to do it. Or I come over here and I, never mind the rules, then I come over here as I stay centered on my relationship with Christ. I forget the rules and I just love mercy. But, the, but the, Micah 6.8, that's the one right here, says to do justice and to love mercy. And you can't let go of either one of them. And sometimes it's super easy to do that. And, and as Christians, we need a little bit of an object lesson. Let me give you the biggest object lesson in the Bible, which is the largest stumbling point for most non-Christians that have an issue with God's authority. Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, and go and sacrifice him on the mountain. And Abraham says yes. Now you can see why this is a problem in most people that don't trust God's heart yet. Can't you? Anybody? Do you see why the world thinks God is an angry God and will ask us unreasonable questions when this question is in here? Go, take your only son and sacrifice him. And so they go on this trip to Mount Moriah. Abraham and Isaac takes his only son, the son of the promise that was given to him. And he takes him up and and his son says, hey, dad, we're going to go sacrifice. Where's the sacrifice? 
Now, I'm going to tell you that I believe that this is an object lesson. How many of you know what an object lesson is? It's a lesson you need because you're very close to stumbling into a spot that's going to be very bad. And you don't give object lessons. You know, Eskimos don't have object lessons on how to drive cars in, in the sunshine because they're not going to face that issue. But we, as a Christian community, do face issues around how we sacrifice others on the altars of our own obedience. Now, in the story of Mount Moriah, God provides a ram. I want to ask you a question. How many of you think that God ever intentionally meant Abraham to kill his son? Say that aloud. No. Why? Why did he send him up there to do it then? Why did he say, go take your son to sacrifice him? Why do you, why do you think he did that? Well, not just to trust me, I'm going to go one step further. It is, do you trust me? But everybody in the culture around Abraham was sacrificing their sons and daughters to make sure that they could have good harvests and all these things. So if you're living in a culture that does a behavior that's abhorrent to God, you might get an object lesson nearby to make sure you don't learn it. And so God sends Abraham up to sacrifice his son and provides an alternate sacrifice. But the Canaanite and and the culture around Canaan at the time was all wrapped up in Baal worship, which was child sacrifice. And then, not shortly after that, God takes the whole Abraham family and puts them in Egypt, which doesn't sacrifice kids that way, while the sin of the land is is filled to overflowing. So the object lesson here is, don't learn how to do that. Don't pick up the spear and throw it back. Don't take the bitterness of your heart and turn it towards the people around you. Because when you do, you're just like them. Now, I'm not making this whole thing up, okay? This is the object lesson in this. 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16 says it this way. So I'm kind of skirting around an issue, and I want you to know that I'm skirting around what happened in New York um, legislature a couple weeks ago. Okay? So this is uh, 1 Peter 1, 13 and beyond. So roll up your sleeves, put your mind in gear, and be totally ready to receive the gift that's coming when Jesus arrives. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil, doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then. You do now. And as obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a life Shaped by God's life, a life of energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I am holy, you be holy. Now, many of us, holy is one of those words that's hard to define in our, in our context and how we talk about it. And many of us have a working definition. Let me ask you, if a, 
God, if your working definition of God's holiness is that he's above the fray and clean and uninvolved. Okay, so I know that several of you, I know not, maybe not you per se, but many of the people I talk to think of God's holiness as that he's not in it with us. He's up here calling us out of it. But Jesus is God and came down into the muck and the mire with us. And so holiness isn't out of the fray and untouched. Holiness is living in the world, caring deeply for the world, but not doing what the world says is the way to do it. I'm not, I, I need to go one other place. This is from Galatians 5. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your own good intentions. This is Paul writing in the same vein as he did from Romans 7 when he says, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's from the end of Romans 7. But when you're directed by the Spirit, you are not under the obligation to the world. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. That's what goes on. And by the way, our culture is really good at this stuff. Isn't it? We like to think of ourselves as a Christian culture. But I'm telling you that America, when I list, list this up, this is pretty much what we live in. And it's not new to us. In some ways, we're not even good at these sins in comparison to past cultures. We haven't practiced them to the level that they practiced them. As I said before, anyone living like that, that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Not spear-throwing, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Not the law of your heart. So where am I going with this? Where am I going with this? We don't get to sacrifice anybody on the altars of our own creation. And the altars of our own creation, even in church, we can have our own altars of creation, can't we? That person isn't dressed right to be amongst us. They need to get it better. I, uh, I, I, I'm almost an audiophile, which means I, I like almost every kind of music that comes my way. I struggle a little with country music. I'm sorry for those country music fans out there. I'm sorry. I, I see back there going, huh, well, I just wrote off everything he said. <laughs> and I really like some jazz, but it, it seems sort of indulgent to me. But those are, but beyond that, but in Christian music spectrum, I like all the way from Gregorian chant all the way to the hard new metal Christian stuff. 
I like it all, and I see the spot it works. But if I sit on there, let's say I told Ted to only play the music that I listen to, most of you would run for the hills. But I would also be saying in my heart, if King Saul were in charge of my heart, well, this is the ultimate experience of all Christian music. This is the way they're going to be doing this in heaven, so we better get used to it. How many of you think in your opinion of opinions that the way you want something done is the way God's going to be doing it in heaven? (laughs) That's an altar, baby. And you don't get to kill people on that altar. You don't get to throw them away on that altar. You don't get to say to um, somebody, well, you don't do church the way I do it. I disagree with you. And, and by the way, the way we do it is the way God's going to be doing it in heaven. You don't know what it's going to be like in heaven. Eyes have not seen and ears have not heard what it's going to be like. All we know is that it's not exactly like right here, only better. It's Just forget the first half. It's not exactly like right here. It is better. So how do we live this? How did they do this in child sacrifice days? God called them out to not be part of that behavior first. He said, don't do it. You don't have to do it. In the Roman time, you know, Romans had this thing. We, we like to think of the Romans as, as, a, as all sorts of things. But they had this practice that they called infant exposure. If they had a baby they didn't want, they took them out to the dump and they just left them. And you know what the Christians did in that culture? They went out to the dump and picked up the babies and raised them. And now I don't know if there was somebody standing on a street corner on a soapbox going, don't kill your babies at the dump. I don't know that. There's no record of it. I'm pretty sure they didn't because that sort of thing wouldn't have flown in Rome quite the same way. So what do we do? Well, sometimes we get elected officials who who say, well, I'm a Christian, so I can't do this part of my job. I hate to tell you this, but I sort of think that if you're a Christian and you can't do the whole job, you should admit that before you're elected. As a child of God, I need to work out the terms of my own salvation with fear and trembling. uh, Philippians 2.12. What does that mean? Well, it means to remember that I had no ability to make my own salvation possible, so I need to not be focused on the terms of your salvation with you other than to be an example and to help when you ask and to be loving along the way. (laughs) Hard work. To not spend all your time working out the terms of somebody else's salvation. But this is what it says in Matthew 5.16. This is Jesus' exact words. This is a more excellent way. Are you ready? Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify you. No, it doesn't say and glorify you. It says and give glory to your Father in heaven. So when people see that you're different, that you haven't thrown spears, that you're not grabbing the spears out of the wall and doing just like everybody else, they will go, wow, they live different. 
I want to be like that. That's what the Christian way is, is an alternative to the world's path. And by definition, do you know what alternatives need to be? Different. If, if your alternative A and alternative B are exactly the same thing, what's the choice? So Christian calls you to work out and live different. Christ calls us to live different, and he gives us the ability to do it, and then we work out how we stand at all this stuff and how we hold on to truth and mercy and the gospel, which is always come be different than you used to be. And it's still calling me to do that. Let your light so shine that they see it, your good works, and glorify your Father in heaven. There's some stuff in our world that, that we need to not learn how to do. And some of that is how we protest, and some of it is how we argue back with the people in charge of our lives or parts of our lives or our workforce and how we interact with people that disagree with us. That we would be different and caring and loving and not throw somebody away on the altar of our opinion or sacrifice them. I am out of time. <laughs>